Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Today we're talking about the history of cannabis activism, and we are joined by the founder of the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, Paul Stanford. Paul, thank you for being here with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Good day. It is a good day, and uh, let's talk for a moment about Portland, Oregon, which we know uh, is where you're located. How, is, uh, how have the last couple of months been? How have you been hanging in there uh, despite everything that's going on around the world? Well, you know, we're still under a lockdown here. Portland was the last metropolitan area in Oregon to uh, uh, come out of that. Um, governor here has extended the uh, the no eviction policy, I think, through the end of September here. That just happened yesterday. Uh, also uh, today, a drug legalization initiative to make uh, uh, drug treatment available for all people was uh, certified for the ballot this November. But in terms of the COVID crisis, uh, we haven't been as badly impacted as some. Our uh, rates have gone up a little bit after the, uh, uh, the, re- the start of the reopening. It's kind of flattened out here uh, currently. Hey, Paul, talk a little bit, if you would, about that ballot measure, because Oregon, of course, has been uh, extraordinarily progressive as it relates to cannabis, at least from an outsider's perspective, and enacting some of the one of the nation's first adult use laws for the marijuana side of the industry and has been a significant player uh, in many respects, genetics in particular, and, and then some on the industrial hemp side of the industry. Tell us a little bit about that ballot measure and, and what your hopes are for it. Um, it's uh, sponsored by the Drug Policy Alliance largely and the local uh, political action committee. It would... Uh, um, decriminalize all drugs and set up treatment uh, funded largely with marijuana taxes and some other tax sources. Um, I haven't uh, studied it in depth, so I really can't speak to all the details of it, but uh, we're happy that it qualified. There's another initiative that hasn't qualified yet. Uh, They've been affiliated that would uh, legalize, like Denver has, uh, psilocybin therapy for people who, who want that. And so uh, this would set it up on a statewide basis. No, that, that's uh, that's also exciting, and uh, you know, would would love to to help in any way in that regard uh, with with our resources and and, and the uh, the great Noah Potter is available to you as necessary on the uh, the psilocybin campaign. But um, you know, the, the topic of the show is the history of activism, and, and your your efforts go back uh, many years, and uh, you've seen a lot, you've done so much. Um, the question I always pose against that backdrop is what happens when a movement becomes an industry? Because that's certainly what's happened on the marijuana side, but not just in the United States or in a particular state around the world. But how do you view that? How do you view what happens when a movement becomes an industry? Well, you know, 
inevitably there are going to be a lot of changes and the changes are going to be disrupting for many people. And that's, that's inevitable when you change from, you know, a prohibition paradigm to you know, the market. And then, and of course, makes the regulations is always critical. Shiv said one thing, and the legislature traditionally in Oregon had had a hands-off policy when it comes to new initiatives passed by the people. In this case, that went out the window. So it was the first time that the state immediately started altering the law. And and some of those changes, some of them have been bad. But uh, we've seen... uh, uh, large and diverse mom-and-pop network spread up, and some of that's consolidating. We've seen fluctuation prices. Prices went really low here again, lower than any place nationally. Uh, it bounce back now, which is good for the growers. And uh, uh, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, capitalists have jumped in, and, and uh, I personally have suffered a uh, uh, hostile corporate takeover and uh, basically based on lies and money. And so I've been victim of uh, trying to take my company public. I think I was just uh, set up really. But uh, um, a lot of other people have seen similar things, Uh, probably not as bad as I was, but the market continues to change. That's one thing we can all count on. Well, Paul, if, if you don't mind, if you care, and if you're, you're free to share, can you tell us a little bit about that scenario, or is that a subject uh, of dispute or a subject that you, you can't necessarily get into? So I can certainly talk about it. Um, I had some people approach me, uh, now know that they were really targeting me to take me out politically. They came in and offered to... Uh, uh, help take my company public. They uh, didn't pay me anything. They said they would give us uh, money to help put our initiative on the ballot to legalize marijuana in 2014. In fact, uh, they uh, never came up with that and used some do- fake documents to go into court and uh, uh, get a temporary uh, injunction to take over my business in June of 2016, and uh, they filed about 30,000 pages of documents. Uh, The judges uh, seemed to be uh, paid off, actually, to be honest. uh, uh, One judge, in fact, uh, Matarazzo, the local district attorney, said a few months after she granted their preliminary injunction that she was corrupt and that they weren't going to try cases in front of her again. So you know how rare that is that a district attorney would call out the judge for being corrupt. Uh, She retired and went to work for the law firm that that went after me. Apparently these people spent $2 million. As I said, they filed 30,000 pages worth of documents. I spent about $170,000 on attorneys in the first uh, six months. Uh, This legal battle went on from June of 2016 through April of 2019. In 2019, I was demanding a jury trial. I didn't have an attorney. I was representing myself. They moved to dismiss their case. I argued they shouldn't, but the judge allowed them to dismiss their case. And since they have all my assets, even real property that 
my nonprofit foundation owned outright. Uh, they just beat me with lawyers and money, even though they had lies and, and forgeries. Well, Paul, was so this pretty the, incredible tale? Was this the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, or was this a different company? Yeah. Okay. So, well, it was. It was the the property belonged to the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, and it was a house where we uh, we'd grown medical marijuana for about twelve years, and so they took that. And because I didn't have an attorney, I just lost by default. In the uh, the the clinic case, I had changed my clinic name over to Empower, uh, and and made it into a business instead of a nonprofit in uh, about two thousand and eleven. And so uh, this was a business, uh, it was Empower Healthcare. And so they took my company public, and the people who, who came in and did this are now four of the board of directors of the Kronos Group in Toronto. And as you probably know, last year they brought in a $1.8 billion investment from Altria Group, which are the owners of Marlboro Tobacco. So the board of directors of Kronos are the ones who, who really did this to me. But they've taken my company public on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and they basically drove it in the ground, sold the medical records. They have one of my uh, 12 different offices is still open here in Portland competing with me. Well, so, Paul, that, that, that tale of woe is, is, is certainly something that we've seen in this industry. We've seen people taken advantage of, like yourself, uh, folks that – um, come in, uh, you characterize them as capitalist, um, folks that just have no um, objective but for, um, you know, money. Predatory capitalism. Predatory capitalism at all costs. Um, what is the lesson there? How can we uh, provide some insight to our listeners about how to avoid that and how to protect themselves, how to carve out a role that would be appropriate um, just be very, very careful who you're dealing with. In this case, I, I really didn't know who I was dealing with, uh, and they they made themselves apparent later on. And so uh, uh, I should have uh, uh, gotten better legal counsel earlier in this, and I didn't. Well, as we look at what happens when a movement becomes an industry, another thing that we've seen is this has really gone global. In fact, uh, you and I... Uh, ran into each other uh, recently, and I think it was the end of November 2019, back when we were allowed to travel. Uh, we were in uh, yeah. Medellin, Colombia, at our, our good friend yeah. Henry's uh, event, Expo Medovid down there, and the uh, the Cannabis Congress that took place. Um, tell us a little bit about your impressions of the global side of this industry, and is that something that, that you're proud to see happen, or does it make you cautious and nervous for the same reasons oh, no, I'm, I'm very happy, very happy to see it happen. Uh, even with the challenges, I'm, I'm still glad that we've legalized cannabis here in Oregon. I'm happy to see it progressing around the world. You know, uh, uh, it's really a, a culture. It's, I, I know, I often speak on this, uh, the oldest crop has been cultivated well over 25,000 years and uh, the most productive crop for food fuel, fiber, pharmacy. So uh, we need this plant. You know, we've co-evolved with it for 25,000 years. So I'm very happy to see. Uh, Vince, I, I, I met Henry first, I believe, in Santiago, Chile, and then in Uruguay. 
at uh, events there, Expo Weed in, in Chile and uh, Expo Cannabis in Uruguay. And uh, he asked me to come to the, the Expo Medi Weed, and I, I'm honored to have gone to all four of them so far. It looks like this year's has been canceled. Is that what you've heard? Yeah, unfortunately, wow. unfortunately, it does appear to be uh, the live events are, are not going to take place, but uh, – but we're we're all teed up for I think a strong 2021 uh, as it relates to Henry's events and hopefully some others where we can get out in the in the world again. One of the things that occurs to me is as you see different countries attack this problem, um, and you know the problem is not necessarily originated the same way it here is in, is here in the United States. Uh, in the United States, to legalize cannabis, we've had to see citizens band together and stand up. And, and that takes the form of gathering signatures and initiating a ballot measure. It generally has not come from, in fact, almost exclusively has not come generated uh, as a policy change by a government. There are some governments that have initiated it most recently, but the early states, uh, and as you point out, Paul, to this very day, cannabis or drug policy reform has to occur through grassroots organization, um, policy reform initiated by citizens. Um, and that's really the tale of did the folks such as yourselves that push so hard for so long get what you anticipated in terms of legalization, or is this commercial environment not what was intended? Because we hear stories all the time about you know, we should go back to the days of pre-commercialization and regulation um, and or maybe we should have just gone for a decrim measure, decriminalization versus a regulated commercial environment because of all the challenges that we've seen and the predatory capitalism that, that is a result of it. Can you comment on some of those items? Sure. Well, I think that... Uh uh, we need to, to legalize cannabis and uh, that, that we aren't at the end stage yet. There's a lot of uh, changes to come. I think that uh, we've seen it overregulated here in the United States. Uh, there's this irrational fear of uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, you know, THC. And, and that's a lot of times hemp is cultivated. Well, I guess almost exclusively it's cultivated according to its THC content. We shouldn't judge... Uh, a seed crop for cannabis or a fiber crop for cannabis by its THC content. It, that shouldn't really matter. It should be the best uh, cannabis available uh, for seed and fiber. And so eventually I think those changes will happen. Uh, we're seeing a lot of, you know, changes currently with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and, and promises and changes in government. Um, I think it's very important that some of those happen in the near future because, uh, uh, you know, they say artificial intelligence will become sentient in about 20 or 25 years. I think it's very important that people expand our individual rights before that happens. And I think cannabis is a bellwether issue when it comes to individual rights. And that's what got me involved in the initiative process back in the late 70s and early 80s. To, to make marijuana legal. It was because I saw that it was being used as a means to stop progressive change and to uh, suppress uh, minorities. And so uh, uh, I saw it as a key for future political freedom. And uh, 
you know, we, we, they say, Martin Luther King said, I believe, that uh, uh, the arc of uh, history is long, but it bends toward justice. Well, we need to bend it a little bit more and a little bit faster, and I saw cannabis as being a critical issue. As I said, I think we co-evolve with it, and we need that evolution to continue. This symbiotic relationship between humans and cannabis is something that uh, uh, is, is desperately needed. Very well said, Paul. And I, I want to come back to that thread on uh, on hemp and how hemp, uh, we're, we're overly focused on THC, particularly that shouldn't really be the concern when you're looking at grain and fiber. And to just go back uh, 30, 40 years, I know that you helped Jack Herrera uh, on his early versions of The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And uh, maybe you could speak a little bit to the, I don't know, maybe what's on the horizon or, or shining light at the end of this. There's a lot of bad. There certainly is. And, and as Bob says, as the industry has moved from the movement space really to a, a commodity and an industry, there's certainly a lot of cautionary tales like your own. Um, but what do you think uh, Jack, for example, I guess, would be thinking today in 2020 uh, seeing the, the Farm Bill passage and seeing the implementation of the, the IFR from USDA, um, are, we, are we making good progress or are we still stymied uh, partially by our own, uh, I don't know, our own perspectives that are, are rooted in a lot of uh, complicated issues? You know, I, I think, well, I know Jack would have been disappointed in this. I met Jack Herrer back in 1982 when I was in Los Angeles and uh, met his partner, Captain Ed Adair, before I met him. And uh, then we both moved to Oregon in 1984 to work on the Oregon Marijuana Initiative. And we qualified for a vote in 1985 that we lost the election a year later in November 1986. That was the second marijuana initiative that was voted on in the United States. The first was in California in 1972. But we lost with just 26% of the vote. The whole federal government came down on our heads there where uh, the Reagan administration, George Bush, Nancy Reagan, they came and campaigned against us there in uh, 1986. But Jack uh, wanted it to be, uh, wanted cannabis regulation to be along the lines of wine regulation. Uh, that's probably a better model than, than what we've seen actually implemented. Uh, he'd be disappointed uh with where we're at right now and be pushing for changes like the ones that, that we're talking about. We've heard lots of discussions about how to approach cannabis legalization or cannabis reform at the federal level. Some folks talk about descheduling. Some talk, folks talk about rescheduling. Some talk, folks talk about the need to first change the UN convention on narcotics to properly reflect cannabis as something that is medicinally beneficial and, and adjusted accordingly on a global scale. What do you see as the preferred path for federal legalization of the marijuana plant in the United States? Well, I think the scheduling would be ideal. The preferred path is to see uh, uh, cannabis uh, descheduled, taken off the schedule so that federal regulation goes away and uh, the DEA's control over this goes away. Um, you know, they've already uh, 
scheduled the THC synthetic uh, Drapanol, Marinol pills down to Schedule 4. And so uh, um, that's what I think the preferred path is, is let the states regulate it. Then we can, just like they do with the alcohol industry. No, that's very well put. Um, as you think about folks that have worked for such a long time, such as yourself, to, to, to affect reform, the OGs, if you will, and that's an overused term, but it stands for a point. How do OGs participate in a commercial environment? Because it seems like, as you point out earlier, there are folks that are out there that are predatory in nature, less than honest in their business dealings, um, and all of a sudden, and whether this is here to stay or not is debatable, this is big business. And when there's a lot of dollars at stake, all of a sudden companies feel like they want pedigreed professionals from outside of cannabis to come in and run these businesses. Now, it's debatable whether those folks are qualified to be in that position, but how do the OGs reinvent themselves and participate in a way um, that would be meaningful in this industry going forward? Change is inevitable, and so you've got to uh, uh, take it as it comes and try to influence it to the best of your ability and, and organize that, that influence with others. Um, right now, um, the best thing you can do, is the old, as the other old adage goes, is to think globally and act locally and work in your local communities and, and state and local communities to, to enact the changes that are needed. And that takes a lot of legwork, a lot of time, but uh, that's the way change happens. So uh, I think that we've got to deregulate the cannabis industry and uh, take away this fear of, of THC uh, that uh, permeates our culture. And part of that is educating people. More and more people are becoming educated every day. Things like this podcast are, are one way that happens. But uh, uh, it's, it's a, a long process, as, as that other as Martin Luther King said, it's a long arc of history. When I first got involved in this, I did not think, you know, in the late 70s when I was a teenager, I thought marijuana would be legal by the early 1980s. And it never occurred to me that this would go on for so long. If I'd known that it was going to go on for so long, I'm not sure I would have been involved in it the way I was. But once I started becoming deeper and deeper into it, I, I saw that, you know, that I thought this was the right path. And so I've continued on. And I'm proud to have done what I've done. And, uh, you well, know, but there's more changes needed. Well, it's certainly something to be proud of, and you've been extraordinarily impactful. Just one note on that, you know, thinking that it, it's right around the corner. There's a book you may be aware of called The Marijuana Farmers, written by a professor from the University of Nor Orleans in the late 60s named Jack Frazier, not Jeff Frazier, but Jack Frazier. Yeah. Got a copy. He, he talks about, like you just said, just like Jack Herr wrote wrote about, as you well know, but he talks about it at that point in time. It's just a year away. It's just 10 months away. And it was this notion right. that every time there was one step forward, it was three steps back because of the Reagan administration example you cited or because of other folks that just didn't understand it or because special interests try to suppress 
the the legality of the plant uh, and continue to maintain these fictions that have been perpetrated for years and years and years. So it is unfortunately something that didn't come to fruition on the timeline that you had hoped, but it did come to fruition, albeit That's right. imperfectly. And, and many of our friends didn't live to see that. You know, there are a lot of my mentors that, that didn't live to see it, like Jack Kerr and Ed Adair and uh, Todd McCurria and, and many, many others will go unnamed. But uh, we all knew that eventually we, we would prevail because the facts were on our side. And so eventually the truth will win. And so uh, it's a long process, but uh, it's worth it, I think. Well, I think it had, you know, everything's accelerating now as well in terms of change. And uh, uh, it's, it's critical that uh, these changes for personal, individual freedom continue. And uh, that's going to take a lot of input from people who believe that. Just like yourself, Paul. We're certainly grateful to have you on the Hoban Minute and even more grateful for the contribution uh, that you have had for, for decades now and moving all of this forward. I think this conversation has been uh, a reminder that every silver lining's got a touch of gray. Uh, it certainly has been for myself, but uh, Paul, we, we thank you so much for coming on today, and uh, we can't wait to talk well, to you again Thanks for having soon. me. Yeah. Uh, it's our pleasure. You're Hope welcome. to see you on the road sometime soon, and uh, be well out there, Paul. Thank you. All right, you too. Travel safely. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.